Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back. So I have news. My book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself, published by Bloomsbury, is on general release from today. All the details are in the show notes. And so Goldie Sayers, the Olympic medalist, kindly agreed to come on and interview me about the book. So here she is. So hello, Simon Mundy, and welcome to your own podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Goldie. It's a pleasure. (laughs) I'm really touched that you have taken the time to interview me about my book. I'm very grateful. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So we are here to delve a bit deeper into your fabulous book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Um, So I guess, firstly, how does it feel to be interviewee, not interviewer? Um. Well, I quite like it. I like that it's you, because obviously you and I have spoken loads, and that's nice. I mean, it is a bit weird, I suppose. You know, I'm used to directing the conversation, so I'm very much at your mercy, so to speak. But no, it's cool. Yeah, I'm excited. And most importantly, just like chatting to you. Oh, so, but you have to let go of control. But you'll have a technique for that, I'm sure. (laughs) So you finished the book. So how does it feel to be a published author? So I've got the book here. Boom. There it is in my hand. Look at it. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting feeling. I have this memory that really sticks in my mind that when I um, got the contract to write the book, my wife took me out for a bite to eat and she bought me a card and was like, oh, isn't this exciting? We must celebrate. And I remember at the time being like, I don't feel like we should really celebrate because it's like celebrating when you're at the bottom of Mount Everest. You know, I was like, I'm, I'm very conscious that I've got this huge mountain. It felt like to climb and then I'll be happy to celebrate. And, um, and then, so it was quite weird when I got the book delivered to home and it was sat on my kitchen table and I was looking at it. I was like, God, 
yeah, I, I remember that moment so clearly and now here it is. So yeah, it's cool. Who knows how it will be received, but I'm, I'm pleased with it. I like the cover and yeah, it's, uh, it, I have a feeling of satisfaction, I suppose, is, is the way to go and excitement as well. So you talked about obviously it feeling like being at the start of climbing Mount Everest. How was the writing process? Because I think we all think, you know, oh, I'd love to write a book, but it is quite a daunting thing, no? It, very much so, yeah. You know, it was never like part of some big plan of mine to to write a book. I got my contract and it was to write it. And I I didn't know much about the publishing process and I thought it was to write it in a year. But what I didn't realize was actually that's basically just the first draft. So that that first year, I remember at the start of that year, feeling like, goodness me, a year has never felt like such a small period of time. And it, and it zipped by. And then I handed it in and they took a while to get back to me. And as you know, because I sent you that, the first draft that I eventually put together, like it's quite different from, my, in, very different from the second draft. And I've had this experience before when I started at Radio 1 where I think when you start something new that you're completely unfamiliar with, it can be quite easy to slip into thinking that you've got to do what you think is the right thing to do. And I, I did that on that first draft. I was just like, okay, I've done all these interviews. I've interviewed all these amazing people and there's so many nuggets and lessons and stuff. And I just try to shovel them all in, in any which way, and then handed it over, sent it to you. And then when I started the second draft, I'd really changed. I'd let go of that. I think I should write what people might want me to say or what I perceive that people might want me to say. And instead, I sort of opened up to what do what do I want to say? What's important to me? How do I see things? How can I illustrate this with the stories and the interviews that I've been fortunate enough to to have? And what was interesting was that second draft where I did... I was, let's say, true to myself, it flowed so much more. It was such a more easy process to write than that first one where I was kind of like squeezing it out of my head and felt like I was bashing my head against the wall. The second one was still hard, still challenging, and it's a really long process and tweaks and all that kind of stuff. But the second one where I was like, okay, no, just just kind of open yourself up to to what's in there and see what comes out. That was a much more enjoyable uh, process than, than the first one. So actually, the second one, I found moments of getting in flow, which is obviously a key theme of the book, and uh, and enjoyed it. And then you go on to the edits and then getting the endorsements. Thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> and then, you know, trying to do a bit of publicity. And here we are. And having read the first draft and then the second draft, I mean, forgive me if you wouldn't describe it this way, but I probably would describe the first draft as more of a kind of high performance type book, the, the type of book that you felt you ought to have written yes. and the yeah, second yeah. version so this much better in my opinion version is more well it is more true to you so so what do you think the overriding theme is well I wanted to try and get lots of nuggets and actionable and takeaways and that kind of thing throughout the book but I did want to have this big idea and it does relate to what you've just spoken about there in terms of high performance and success, because I get sent a lot of books for my podcast. And I do think there's quite a common one, which could be summed up with a title like 10 Steps to Being Successful. 
that sort of begs the question, like, why do you want to be successful? I think some of the people I've spoken to suggest those kind of things can be a bit corrosive. I think Alan de Botan came out with quite a nice quote, which is self-help book can be divided into two categories. One is how to earn a million dollars in an afternoon, i.e. how to be successful. And the other is how to deal with your low self-esteem. And he said they're two sides of the same coin because on the one hand you're striving and the other hand is, well, I can't get to where I should be. So the big idea for me is culturally, we tend to think that we will be happy when or content or fulfilled when X happens. And that X could be any number of things from getting the relationship, getting the house, the promotion, the big bank account, the car. And then in sporting terms, where it's obviously heightened, the Olympic gold medal, uh, the World Cup win, whatever it may be. But there are so many examples in sport and outside of people who get to where they really aspire to go to, only, only to find that it didn't hold that fulfillment and, and joy that, that was promised. I think for me, there are a couple of really obvious examples, like Johnny Wilkinson when he kicked the winning drop goal to win the World Cup in 2003, he was like 24 years old and he'd achieved his life's ambitions. He'd wrote down when he was a kid, oh, I want to be the best rugby player in the world and I want to win the World Cup. So we all have variations of goals like that and he had achieved them by the age of 24. And then the next day he said he'd never felt so empty and he was sort of driven into this recognition of, goodness me, if what I want more than anything or what I think I want more than anything isn't going to give me the peace that I really want then what now where do I look and so success is often not as fulfilling and can even be empty for people I mean Rebecca Romero I think said something like an Olympic gold medal should come with a health warning and numerous CEOs and you know we sit with successful people all the time quote unquote successful people but then if you look at flow the experience of being in flow. And I would argue as well, this is what sport's all about, is being in flow, seeing people in flow. That's what we really love. But And the thing about flow is it's very revealing and it's easy to overlook. And a key aspect of flow is that our sense of self disappears. Now, what happens is we're so in the moment that thoughts about the past go thoughts about the future go so we're utterly utterly present like time can distort you've spoken about it you you spoke really eloquently about time feeling like it can be stretched um and also you know obviously it, as we also everyone knows you know an hour can go by in what feels like five minutes as well depending on context and flow is always inherently enjoyable and to me that's very revealing if flow is always inherently enjoyable, why is that? It can't just be about the performance. It can't just be about achieving a PB or whatever, because there's different portals where that doesn't even come into play. It, and to me, it is about that loss of the sense of self. And so that to me is, is, a, is a really revealing thing. It, it, it sort of flips it to me in my view, on its head, this idea of success, because success is is viewed as, okay, I'll be happy when X in the future, but flow actually shows, no, the joy, the peace, the fulfillment, that sense of wholeness is actually there. It's just about almost getting rid of the, the barriers 
that are getting in the way of it. And those barriers are created by our thinking mind, thinking about the past, thinking about the future. And our thinking mind creates this sense of self. I call it you know, our self-concept in the book. And when that goes, we love it, which is why we love it when we get lost in sport, music, dance, conversation, cooking. Like There are so many ways into it. And, and I just think that's really revealing. And we need to start looking in that direction, as in our contentment is not out there, somewhere out there in the future, in objects, in approval, in whatever it may be. It's actually where we're looking from. And it's just getting back in touch with that. Obviously, it is a very enjoyable experience being in flow, but we spend quite a large proportion of our lives not in flow. So not everybody is going to be, you know, able to go to an Olympic Games or a World Cup final. So how do they kind of tap into that state more often in life's kind of more mundane activities, shall we say? Yeah. So if I give an example from my own life, and this stemmed from from suffering for me, I've spoken about it a lot. You've certainly read about it. Um, like So despite my bluff and bluster, you know, I think by nature, I certainly in the past and can still be a little, somewhat anxious. And so when I was younger, I really battled that and fought that. And in my 20s, I've spoken about this, like it, it developed into this really bad case of insomnia. It stemmed, it was my finals at university. The night before my finals, I tried to go to bed and I couldn't sleep. And this kind of seed of doubt was sown. And then it just grew and grew and grew until like in my mid twenties, it was, it was pretty much, I would dread going to bed. It was like I was going into battle. My heart would be racing, the adrenaline, the cortisol would be pumping, even before I'd set foot in the bedroom. Right? And I did all the things that you read in the newspapers, you know, about good sleep hygiene. So like hot milk, reading, right the way through to, shouldn't laugh, sleeping pills and all that stuff. You know, I was in quite a pickle. And um, completely by chance, I found this guy called Dr. Guy Meadows, who's now very successful director of The Sleep School. And at the time he was working out this tiny little office and I literally had one session with him and he introduced me to the principles of ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. But he said one sentence that literally like hit me like a ton of bricks. And he said, it's important to distinguish between the thinking mind and the aware mind. And I was like, wow, we're all familiar with the thinking mind. It's what conceptualizes and judges the voice in our head. And then there's the aware mind, which is just so easy to overlook because it's not, it's the thing doing the looking. It's like looking for your eye with your eye. It, it's not something obvious. When I was having my insomnia problems, I used to do two things, which is very common. I, I'd try and fix it. I'd either try and, let's say a, a thought popped up along with feelings of anxiety going, oh no, I'm not going to sleep. Tomorrow's going to be awful. And then I'd, maybe I'd have a conversation in my head like, look, you don't know that. You know, there's still five hours left. If I fall asleep right now, I, I'll be okay. Or other times I'll just try and ignore it and sort of push it away. And neither of those things worked. It just kind of fueled it. But what he introduced me to was, okay, if you can notice that you have this part of you that's aware of the thought, so this aware mind, and rest there, so to speak. Recognize that that's who you are when the thoughts come and go. Then... You can allow the thoughts to pass on by like clouds in the sky and they unwind on their own. And so he introduced me to this diffusion technique, which I talk about in the book. I'm aware of the thought that 
oh, I'm aware of the thought that I'm not going to sleep. I'm aware of the thought that tomorrow's going to be bad. And it creates this little gap, this little space. And then you realize, well, hang on a sec. I'm not my thoughts. And therefore, also, I don't need to engage. I don't need to try and get rid of this thought or identify with it. I can sort of let it pass by. And it had a really profound impact on me. And it gradually unwound my insomnia. But then I started applying it in other areas of my life. And it sent me off on this sort of quest, as it were, to, to understand more about this. Because it just that, that sentence had such a profound impact on me. And then I started exploring this aware mind. And I like calling it aware mind because I think it, it's a bit more easy to get your to get your head around to to relate to that because everything that we experience we're aware of it so my voice now anyone who's listening is aware of it i can see your face i'm aware of the sight of your face i'm aware of the the feelings of the sensations of my feet on the floor i'm aware of the thoughts in my head whatever it may be and so that aware mind is always there and if you can just, I think, just recognizing that there is something there that is aware of all these things. And if we want to stick to thoughts, you know, if you have a thought like think of a tree or something, you'll notice it comes and it goes. And there's something that's there before, during and after. Really subtle. A friend of mine describes it as being like invisible, then subtle and then obvious. And that's been my experience. And so if you can just recognize there is something and we can call it the aware mind or awareness that is aware of your thoughts, your feelings, your sensations, your perceptions. And the more that you're aware of that aware mind, the more obvious it becomes. And then you start to notice that it is at peace and it's relaxed, irrespective of what's going on. It doesn't have a problem. It's not like I prefer this music over this music. This thought's good, but another thought isn't. Rupert Spira who I quote in the book, gives quite a nice analogy. It's like the space of a room. The space of a room has no problem, no issues with whatever the content of the room happens to be. And the same is true of the aware mind and the thoughts and feelings that are, that are in it. And so I would just say for anyone in, mon as you said, in, in mundane life, not in flow, is just to become more aware of that aware mind and almost start to shift your your identity, let's say, from this this conceptual identity of oh, I'm a I'm a man, I'm a dad, I do this for a job, I believe this, this is my tribe, I support this, da da da, all these things that make up our conceptual identity. To the part of us that is aware of our thoughts and all those are thoughts, then in time, what I what I notice is it gradually sort of comes from the background of experience and more and more to the foreground, and the piece that's in it just pervades your life a bit more. It helps me relate to other people more. So I would say, yeah, just noticing that distinction. Stop being so identified with your thoughts. Notice there's something that is aware of your thoughts. Very subtle. Put your attention on that. Put your awareness on your aware mind. And peace that we experience in flow can, can start to bubble up and be experienced to a greater or lesser extent, often subtly, all the time. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely does. And, and so this awareness obviously helped you with insomnia. You did talk about another experience you had. Um, I don't want to take you back there, literally, but about around 2012 and um, doing yeah. quite a critical, in your mind anyway, interview that people would have been listening to on Radio 1. So, so where, where else? Yeah. Can Radio 5. Oh, sorry, 5 Live. Obviously not radio. Um, can I quickly tell? Can I quickly tell that story? Because I think that's quite important. Yeah, I think everybody really can quick. identify with their own moment exactly, of right. 
imposter syndrome is something that people like talk about a lot and some people say oh women experience it but men don't and things like that but I've given talks and every time I've been in a room and I've said right who in this room has experienced imposter syndrome I've never been in a room where not every single person's hand hasn't gone up so I think this is like a universal thing right that we all feel are thoughts of oh I shouldn't this is out of my comfort zone whatever and you know I'm going to get found out blah 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 so I was um yeah it was super Saturday so London 2012 which I know was the best of times and the worst of times for you um so uh, yeah oh poor just for context yeah so Goldie just I've got to throw this in there so you, yeah you were one of the favorites to win to win a medal and then bust your arm very very sad but yeah um, it was great timing my timing in life is always perfect but you anyway, back to you, Simon. Later. Anyway, yeah. So, um, so there I was, and I'd been running around the, the Olympic Park and having a great time for the duration of the games. And then Super Saturday came around, and I was asked to do a live report from the fan park that evening. And if you remember, Mo, Jess, and Greg Rutherford uh, all won gold, and it was just built into this massive crescendo. And it just felt like a really big deal, not only because of the um, how big a uh, a day it was for British sport, but also because bosses of Five Live, who at the time I thought were people who would make or break my career, were also listening. So it felt like a like an X Factor audition or something like that. And as the moment drew nearer where I was due to go on live, I just felt this anxiety rising in my tummy. And I did that thing of, oh my God, go away, like try and get rid of it, thinking that would work. And it just bubbled up and grew, went into my head. I was like, I want to run away. I'm going to mess this up. I, I mean, I was, I don't want to say I was near to having a panic attack, but it wasn't pleasant, certainly. And then uh, the moment came, adrenaline kicked in and I got through it, but it was it was a question of survival rather than thriving. And then I I, I dived more into this and I, I talk about this in there. A couple of years later, I was in the wings of a television program ready to go on to be interviewed by someone who's renowned for being a tough interviewer. And uh, I had that exact same feeling rise in the tummy. But this time, rather than, you know, try and get rid of it, I did that thing. Oh, I'm aware of it. And I, I kind of welcomed it. You know, I had space for it. I didn't fight it or anything like that. And what happened was by not resisting it, it didn't go up into my head. I didn't have those catastrophic thoughts. It was just like, okay, it's an intense, mildly intense sensation. Could be anxiety, could be excitement. And I, I went on and did it and I really enjoyed it. And now when I get that that feeling before I give talks or whatever, it's like, okay, it's totally normal. It, and it's the not battling it. And so bringing that I'm aware of, or just now just being aware of it, allowing it to be, allowing the sensation to be, inquiring into directly into the sensation without the storyline of I'm going to mess this up and end up on the street and never work again that can be a really powerful powerful practice so uh, yeah <laughs> it's amazing where you went from being at 2012 to being homeless that's see that's what the mind can do isn't it <laughs> isn't it like it goes crazy yeah it really does. no it absolutely does I'm sure everyone's got their own examples um but, but obviously in the book, there's some amazing takeaways. Those being, you know, you can obviously help yourself with imposter syndrome to insomnia. But there's some other great ones. Let's start with Sir John Kerwin, who sounds like a lovely, lovely chap. And his tips for avoiding burnout. And he had a big chapter around kind of mental health, didn't he, effectively in the book? 
Yeah. So the book opens with Sir John Kerwin and Will Carling, who were like two of my heroes when I was a little boy, because my dad is a rugby fanatic and used to take me to rugby all the time. And, and these were England's figurehead. And then the guy who was basically considered to be the best player in the world, just at the point where I got into it. And so, um, yeah, with John Kerwin in particular, what I didn't realise was just when I was there thinking that this guy is He-Man, he was basically in the middle of like this really big depressive episode and was close to suicide, which again, just shows you, you know, we judge people's insides by their outsides and get it so wrong. And he came out about his mental health in the mid noughties, 2000s, and um, was really worried about how it would be received. Wasn't obviously as common as it is now, but he was massively welcomed and, went on to become knighted for services to mental health. And so he's got this really interesting company. It's called Groove and does a lot of work around mental health. But he shared this this analogy that I think for me is um, is one I, I think about a lot. I'm not always great at putting it into practice, but I share it a lot. And it, it does roll into flow in that kind of thing. And, and it relates to the fact that in this day and age, we never have to be bored. So I've got my phone here, you know, and like whenever I get a train, if I'm working at the BBC or wherever I'm going, I'll always look down the platform and everyone these days tends to be head bowed, head in the phone. So we never have to be bored. So obviously, you know, we work long hours. We, we've got email, we've got instant messaging. So we're being pulled from pillar to post while we're working. And then our work life balance is blurred. And then not on top of that to relax, quote unquote, people just scroll often. And so what we're doing is we're keeping our brains just in this state of high alertness and we're not allowing ourselves time to downregulate. And so, yeah, he gave a really nice example of if your computer's not working, what you do is you turn it off and you turn it on again. And most of the time that works. So he says the same is true of our brains. And so for him, he's like he tried meditation, mantra meditation didn't work for him fine so he he says he's an active relaxer he cooks he gets really into the smells coming into the present so you're not thinking about past and future not ruminating he likes to walk in nature he has a guitar he taught himself how to play guitar during lockdown and I was like I bet you're not that bad he's like it doesn't matter it's not about being good or bad it's just doing something that you enjoy for you there are loads of ways of doing it for me I like reading obviously sports conversation meditation is a good way of doing it my wife does mantra meditation I just follow my breath but it's about factoring these into the day so perhaps you work for 90 minutes two hours whatever it may be and then factoring these things in so that we embrace boredom we allow our brains to sort of power down and actually during the writing of the book I found this so I was working at David Lloyd during the editing process and I would work for like three hours in the morning and I would be getting frustrated and my mind would be going, no, you've got to work through this. And I'd force myself to go for a swim and then have a bit of a steam room and I'd come back and invariably then like your mind, which hasn't been thinking about the problem, has worked it out while you've been distracted. And, and we just need to do that on a micro level. So I think that that is just such an important mental health, but also creativity, well-being way to live is just to make sure that you're factoring in these times to power down and someone gave a really good example of sports people actually it's like like sports people i'm sure you can confirm this right you wouldn't have trained for eight hours like people who work in an office right you train hard for what like three four hours and then rest to be at your best 
And so we tend to think it's just like work, 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 work. But you do that and you're becoming less effective, more tired, more grumpy, less creative. Your power output's just dropping, dropping, dropping. So factoring in these times to switch your computer off and on again is, is really, really important. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So... Obviously, in the book, we talk about, you talk about the thinking mind and the aware mind and jumping to kind of, or leaping to judgments about certain events being either good or bad. So there was some great kind of examples from kind of Henry Fraser and, and John McAvoy, who's got probably one of the best stories, I would say. Well, there is in sport, um, but certainly one of my favorites in the book. So just talk us through that a little bit more. Yeah, these two guys are, are really amazing people in that they both experienced something that would be nightmarish to anticipate or imagine. So John grew up around fairly well-known organized criminals. And of course, like we're all conditioned by our environment. And so he just thought that was normal. And he saw that his father died before he was young. So he, he was aware of mortality and he was like, I want to leave a legacy. And that legacy for him, judging by the people around me, it's about accumulation of money and wealth. That was the goal to happiness, let's say. And the way to achieve it was through crime. As is often the case, that didn't quite exactly go to plan. He was trying to do an armed robbery, but got arrested and... He'd already spent one year in jail previously, but on this occasion, he made a mad dash to get away. And I remember him saying to me at that point, he said, I would rather have died than go back to prison. I knew what was coming. Literally, I would rather die than face what I'm about to face. He did get caught and he got sentenced to life imprisonment. He was in Belmarsh with some of the most high profile terrorists for a while. And then he moved to a different prison. But it was while in this different prison, he was, ha just happened to be watching the news at 10 one night. And he saw a film, a news report of someone who died in the Netherlands doing a robbery. And he spotted 
from the CCTV footage in this report that it was his best mate who he'd grown up with. And in that very moment, he had this like realization like, oh my God, what am I doing? I'm completely wasting my life. My best friend has just died. This is a complete waste. And so this sort of mental edifice, this mental model of success and life just crumbled. And so he was like, okay, that's it. I'm done with crime. He, it was like he had an enlightened moment, an epiphany moment. I'm done, but obviously can't get out of prison. So I need to steer clear, get away from a lot of the people who who are still committed to the life of crime. And the way he found to do that was to try and spend as much time as possible in the prison gym. He got into rowing and he was on the rower one day and a prison officer called Darren Davis walked past and just happened to notice like how fast he was going and the times on his ergometer was like, that's really quick. Came in the next day with a load of records, which John immediately looked at and thought, I can break these. Realized he had the sporting prowess and ability to break these world records. And so he set about doing it. He broke indoor rowing world records, I think for a marathon and various other things. So he broke all these world records. And then he was like, okay, so what I want to do, rather than you know leave a legacy and achievement through crime, what I want to do is leave a legacy through sporting achievement, through records and all that kind of stuff. So he got out of prison eventually, which is a story in itself, like the length of time it took him to get out. But he got out of prison eventually and he joined a, a rowing club. No one knew about his past. He soon realized, though, that he was too old to become a professional rower. You know, you'd have to be in the system for a very long time. But he was still sort of dead set on being a professional athlete, making records, so on and so forth. But then another serendipitous thing happened where he was being asked to go and give talks and he didn't think he'd done anything special. And he went to a school to give a talk. And at this school, he was sort of talking about how he turned his life around. And afterwards, this kid came up to him and was like, you remind me of me. My father is in prison. He's coming out soon. I don't want to follow him down that path. And so John McAvoy was like, I want to mentor this kid, help him avoid going down the route I went down. So he did that. And he had this realization that's sort of really... There's two key realizations, I think, from this chapter. So I'll start with this one, which is that he'd always thought, first he thought success was about earning wealth and accumulation. Then he thought it was about records and medals and stuff like that. But then he had this real insight that it was actually, no, if he could positively impact other people like this kid, keep him out of prison, that would then improve his life and that might improve his kid's life and it would just spread exponentially. So it wasn't about personal achievement. It was about serving the whole, as it were. So that was insight number one. But also then he said he looked back at that moment when he thought I'd rather die than go back to prison and said, actually, I'm grateful I went to prison. I'm not, I regret the things I did to go to prison, but I'm grateful because it completely changed my life and sent me off in this direction. So I think we can all relate to this, that things happen and we're like, oh, that's a disaster. That shouldn't have happened. And then it ended up being a good thing. Maybe we like didn't get the job we wanted and then you end up getting a better one. There are so many examples of this, but again, it's just like the mind leaping to conclusions about how things are, how things should be. And then life who's really in the driving seat not us showing us that actually we don't have it right i think that's a an important insight not to take our mind's judgment of events too seriously yeah and, and one interesting concept i think that's not been talked about a lot i don't think um for me anyway was that i guess as being a, a kind of probably ego driven sports person ex-sports person obviously ego in its truest sense as well we all think that you know our achievements are as a, as a result of all our effort and, you know, it's all down to us. But you talk about us actually having no control. Well, really, well, one nice line actually was, you know, when we look back, it's clear that our lives 
are a result of a vast web of arbitrary but interconnected events and circumstances. So ultimately, we don't have any control, really, or it's not all down to us. No, no. And it really annoys me when people take too much credit, like even down to this book. It wasn't a big part of the plan. If I look at all the things that have had to have happened for this book to come to pass, I didn't really choose any of it. And so when people sort of pat themselves on the back and mm. have an eye done well, I, I sort of wince at that a little bit because we don't choose our body. We don't choose our parents. We don't choose the time we live. We don't choose anything. We don't even choose. Like our thoughts are just coming up. No one knows what thought they're going to have next. So I think taking too much personal credit for what we achieve in life is, is just a bit naive and indulgent <laughs> no it's a, it's a good com- it's a it's a challenging thought I think to a lot of people there's a few concepts that d- certainly challenge um people's thinking which is great and then you've got the amazing story of the uh, 2016 Olympic gold medal winning hockey team what did you call the chapter the we rather than the me the power of we not me yeah that's it so a couple of things about this is you know, I was a sports reporter for a long time, still still am occasionally, and invariably football dominates the landscape. When other sports really capture the imagination, I really like that. And during my time, I definitely think this, the hockey gold medal winning team squad journey of Rio was one of my favourite stories. So Kate Richardson-Walsh had been captain for eons, like really amazing captain and I can totally understand why I think it had been so 2004 they hadn't qualified then 2008 they'd come like seventh and then 12 they'd got bronze I think and then 2016 there'd been all these ups and downs they won gold but when she was stood on the podium she was in tears Kay Richardson Walsh thinking back to the people who had not qualified in 2004 and you know had missed out and all the people along the way who supported and partners and squad members who hadn't been picked and I just thought that was such a beautiful thing for a captain to focus on rather than get me I'm the captain of this gold medal winning team you know I can cash this in for the rest of my life woohoo no she was like thinking about everyone else and so I think this again points to like for me a really deeper insight that relates actually to the big idea which is that we're so tribal and tribalism in sport can be fun as long as it's not taken too seriously and then we can become very egotistical and it's about me and I want to get picked ahead of this person and that but actually when people prioritize we over me really magical things can happen and the point really is because it wasn't just about the team it wasn't just about the squad it was about what they had that motto didn't they like be the difference create history inspire the future something like that and so it was this we included all these people dating back years but also like future generations and so I just thought if we then expand that out into normal life like we can be all of us on this planet including animals in the planet itself and the more I think we get into that sense of we you know it's not about self-aggrandization but you know lifting everyone up I just love that journey so hats off to the whole 2016 team squad yeah and we talked a bit about, you know, challenging the notion of kind of goal setting, but something I actually have never seen the research or anybody else challenge um, the notion of a growth mindset. This was, this was I, when I was reading the chapter, Simon, I was like, oh, Simon, this is, this is going quite hard at it, which was, no, it's good. Yeah. And it's interesting because I'd never read any of the sort of alternative research, but just talk us through that for me. I think growth mindset and fixed mindset and stuff, there's no problem with someone saying, oh, 
or pointing out if someone says, I can't do this, go, oh, you can't do this yet. I think there's no problem with that. But I don't think that's a new idea. When I was riding a bike when I was a little boy, growth mindset wasn't a thing. But my dad sort of encouraged me to keep on going and, and assured me that I would eventually be able to ride a bike. And he was right. So I don't think that's a new idea. But if you look at Carol Dweck's TED talk that she gave, that was massive. It was mainly focused initially the research on kids at school and academic achievement and whether or not they thought, okay, my abilities can are fixed, static, or whether they can change. So basically just what you believe, what you think. But the key part for me was where she said, now we can impact that through relatively simple interventions. So for example, you could go by praising effort over attainment or process over outcome, then you can trigger someone to go from a fixed mindset into a growth mindset and the outcomes will be great. Now, I spoke to Professor Timothy Bates, who has tried to recreate the core research that Dweck and her colleagues did and found no correlation at all. Now, I think the pushback from that has been that, well, yes, but that's because people aren't doing it skillful enough and there needs to be certain settings and so on and so forth. But then that to me raises questions because if schools and sports clubs and businesses are saying, okay, but we can get someone into a fixed mindset by doing these simple things, praising their effort over what they've achieved. And actually there's no evidence that it works. Then it's a waste of time and a lot of cases money. And then Carol Dweck said something, which is that, you know, no one's a fixed or a growth mindset all the time. And I think this is patently obvious. And I remember speaking to Dr. Russ Harris. He came out with quite a nice line. And he's like, one day I'm going to win parent of the year. The next day, I think my kid will be destined for decades of therapy. And I think that's true of all of us. I know that my thoughts and feelings change. Like if I'm in a good state of mind, the world seems wonderful and everything's great, but then it, it can change and thoughts do change and feelings do change and beliefs even change. And so therefore it's to me, this idea of having a, a growth mindset, yeah, well, sometimes you will be in that state, but other times you won't. And it comes back actually to like that diffusion technique of not taking your mind too seriously when it says I can, or I can't do something. Seeing through a belief saying, oh, I can't do this. I'm aware of the thought I can't do this, for example. And then trying to do it anyway and exploring it, that to me is far more powerful than this idea that you can change what people believe just by saying, hey, goodness me, aren't you trying hard? Well done you. And they'll be suddenly in this growth mindset state. What I was really trying to get at as much as perhaps just slightly gently puncturing some of the um, hype around growth mindset is just that everything changes all the time. Our thoughts change, our feelings change. That doesn't need to stop us from doing what we want to do. But also then it does lead into deeper questions about, about identity, about who we are. We don't need to get into that, which actually leads back to what I spoke to earlier, that aware mind. That is what I'm trying to get at. And I just happen to use growth mindset as a way, a way into that. But yes, that is a little potentially controversial. So I'm interested to see how people react to that. <laughs> And I don't think we can we can record this podcast without talking about masturbation. And I did say masturbation, Simon. So tell us about that. Well, <laughs> the one with a U. We don't need to. We don't need any talk about the one with an A. That's a no, different podcast. No, okay, we'll leave that out. Keep it clean. So Helen Davis and Lucy Gossage, who happens to be running the Spine Race as we speak, which is I think the most hardcore race down the Pennine Way. This is from the chapter here, and it's about beliefs. Albert Ellis, who's this guy, like very influential psychologist, and he came up with REBT, Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy, which is a precursor to CBT, 
And he identified three core beliefs that cause a lot of people suffering. One is I must do well. Another is others must treat me well. And the third is the world must be easy. And if you have these beliefs, then again, you're fighting with reality because you're not going to do well at everything you do. And actually, the idea that you must do well is not true. There's that quote I gave in the book of Roy Hodgson saying that he hates when people talk about a must-win game in football. He's like, well, what if my team are 2-0 down? Does that mean I need to go out and shoot the opposition because it's must-win? And so, yeah, just recognising these beliefs, and you can spot them, Albert Ellis explained and Helen Davis explained eloquently, both in my podcast and on the book, watching out for words that I must, I, I should, I ought to, I have to. Because actually there's nothing we have to do, really, have to do beyond breathe, have shelter and eat. You know, everything else is a bonus. I remember actually a Tai Chi guy I see, he's like, if you think winning is important, hold your breath for five minutes and then tell me what's important. <laughs> and I think we overlook this kind of thing. And so, yeah, getting rid of musts and beliefs is really valuable. I really focus on I must do well being the key one because that's very pressure inducing. Getting rid of this idea that you must do anything is really valuable and, and can make life a lot easier and take a lot of the pressure off. I remember at the end of that chapter with Lucy and Helen, I talk about when Lucy went for a run when she was competing. So she was a Ironman athlete and she'd forgotten her watch. So she set off on the run thinking that she could do seven minute miles, but because she didn't have a watch, she just was like, well, I've just got to run and see what happens. So she didn't have a belief about, oh, I can run this time or or anything like that. It was just, it was pure exploration. It was pure just instinct and just going. So there was, not, there was no beliefs there at all about what or what wasn't possible. And she did six and a half minute miles. So like 30 seconds quicker than she otherwise would have done. So this idea, therefore, that you need to believe you can, I would suggest that's not entirely true. But believing you can't can certainly be inhibiting, but just exploring and seeing what you're capable of. Like my little baby daughter downstairs she's learned how to crawl she's gonna start talking and walking and she doesn't have a growth mindset and she's learning far quicker with less stress and pressure than anyone i know so i think it's time we challenge some of these psychological intervention assumptions basically she's not masturbating is she <laughs> she's totally present she's got no ego she's not thinking about the past or the future she's just completely present completely in the moment no ego and that's what we love about babies. My daughter doesn't have a belief that just being herself is not enough, but we invariably pick that up o over the course of life. And then we sort of set out to show that we're enough. But that okayness, that wholeness that is very evident in my daughter and in yours, it's still there in us, just underneath a load of concepts and beliefs and, and feelings and stuff like that. And so again, that's why I'm like, we're looking in the wrong direction. It's getting back in touch with that a natural state, as it were, prior to these beliefs about not being enough and so on and so forth. And would you say that's the, the, the thing that you want people to take away if there was one thing to take away from reading this book? Do you think that would be it or what else might you want them to take away? Yeah, I think so. Part of this comes not just from my own interviews, but my own exploration is having been someone who <laughs> felt a bit flawed and broken and and you know didn't like feelings of anxiety or insecurity or shame even and then getting in touch with this aware mind so when these feelings now come up as they still do it's not resisting them oh, i shouldn't be feeling that they're just 
appearances in this. And so, yeah, I would say it's a recognition that underneath all our conditioning and our beliefs, we're all fine. It's very obvious when a baby's born that that's the case, but we lose sight of that and we get this idea about ourselves and then we set out to fix it. You know, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, so I would say recognizing that, that you're okay with feelings of shame or guilt or whatever it may be because when you do that when those feelings come up it's not about resisting them it's, it's actually it's quite interesting when they come up I wouldn't say I like it but I certainly don't resist it in the way that I used to and on the one level that aware mind level we're completely whole and fulfilled and fine but on the, the human side we're all imperfect and messed up and flawed and selfish and somewhat narcissistic all these things like that's just where the way it is and bringing those two together, it's like full acceptance. And an interesting question might be, obviously your fabulous book is out in the ether now for people to go out and buy very excitedly, quickly and in large volume. <laughs> but how are you not going to lose yourself when the book is amazingly successful? How, how will you measure success with this if we're talking about success? That's a good question. Um, well, I was thinking about this. I remember you you asked me about, I think you posted about like what success is a while ago. And I've got a couple of answers to that. One is like recognizing that we're whole and fine. And so is everyone else. And then expressing that in the way we are in the world, in the way we relate and stuff like that. And that also, by the way, can involve bringing awareness to our more dysfunctional patterns of behavior and being open to that. But then the other thing is, I think success can be put quite simply of just um, kindness and empathy. You know, if you're kind and empathetic and, and not a pushover, I don't mean, you know, be some self-sacrificing type, then to me, that's success in and, of, in and of itself. There are lots of people who are mega successful who are not necessarily treat other people very well, and they will be deemed as to be successful by society. But I think as long as you can retain that, that humility and that kindness although we all mess up from time to time right um then that to me is is success so people can buy this book now it's out now isn't it it's out now yeah go to my website amazon wh smith any other good booksellers i did this on my newsletter but i'm doing a bit of a prize for anyone who does um buy it and uh, leave a review send me that and then uh, i've got a special prize which you can read about in my newsletter but yes please go and buy it it's endorsed by Ronnie O'Sullivan. This book captures the magic of being in flow. Amol Rajan, business leaders, sports coaches ought to read it. Jason Fox, Simon's looked in something we actually all know at least one did, the ability to live life more in the now. Rupert Spira, Simon skillfully weaves the implications of recognition of our true nature with compelling sporting anecdotes. And Goldie Sayers, rounding out the it, it was the most I must say Simon it was it was the most hilarious text you sent me can you uh, endorse my book for me I've got Caitlin Jenner Ronnie O'Sullivan and someone else who's obviously a household name and I was like Simon I'm not in that list but um I would be delighted obviously I said Goldie I think of you in that list yeah well I really appreciate it you're very very kind and and obviously you pretty much uh, last question though for me you, and what was it like having a basic because I basically write a chapter about you well, I, I mean, I must say, before people read this book, I've never had so much smoke blown up my bottom before. So, yeah, it was, um, I, I guess on a down day, I could read that. But no, I'm very flattered, highly flattered. But I'm in a chapter around flow, aren't I? So 
um, I guess I was just fortunate to be in an event where you kind of are competing against the event, really. So in some ways, maybe that, maybe it enhances the experience. I'm not too sure, but I was lucky in that I experienced flow a few times in my career. I know what it feels like anyway, and it's definitely better than any drug I can imagine. I don't know. I've never taken any. So, um, so, so yes, no, very, very honored to be included in the book. I, I personally, I do think the book gets very, very good. The last couple of chapters, not because I'm my kind of star in the last chapter, but just, I think that's where you can almost feel you getting into flow yourself. It's almost like a crescendo, I think the book. So yeah, I think it's a great book and it's definitely a different way of thinking about success and definitely better than all the books you get sent for your podcast oh bless you yeah it's interesting those last two chapters because they do go off on a tangent and I think some people might struggle a little bit with that but you know I think that's what I'm most interested in as you just sort of said and uh, if there is a follow-up that's the area I'll be doing a deep dive into more yeah I was gonna that was gonna be a question actually I just thought we've probably run on too long now but but what is next are there any ideas or maybe podcast interviews that you didn't get to include that you would like to or ideas to develop? I've got a newsletter called it A New Way of Being and I'm actually doing like a mini podcast series called Success Evangelism and A New Way of Being. So I do want to go down this route of exploring what we've spoken about of recognising that we're okay, that we don't need to achieve X, Y and Z to be okay. Nothing wrong with achieving that as long as it's not trying to fill a fill a hole. Um, and uh yeah but but i don't plans are somewhat up in the air so i'll see what life has in store wonderful well i wish you all the very best in your endeavors and hopefully you will remain grounded and humble and those things when your success is awesome and you don't lose yourself in becoming a best-selling amazon number one writer um please it's funny i just got to say uh yeah in pre-sales i was number one in hockey Number three in movers and shakers. So there we go. Yeah, I've, I've already, already had a number one in a quite a niche area. So there we go. But yeah, thank you, Goldie. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you as always. Thank you very much for sparing your time. Thank you for reading the book. Thank you for your endorsement. And thank you for being such a wonderful woman. Ah, thank you, Simon. I was about to say the same to you, but you are a man, I think. Well, today you are. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but no, it, it's a, a fabulous book. I really encourage everybody to go out and and get a copy and um and let's let's see how it does and the conversations it promotes and provokes and sparks and i really enjoyed it thank you for listening to this episode and thank you to everyone who's already bought champion thinking it means a huge amount and if you were able to leave a review wherever you can i would be very grateful And just to say, I'm running a special competition open to anyone who has bought the book. All the details are in my newsletter, which you can sign up to on my website, simonmundy.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.